Good morning, brothers. Good morning. So glad to see you guys. Alabama fans, it's so good to see you this morning too. We need some Jesus after this past Monday, I know that much. Guys, it is so good to see you today. I hope you're enjoying your breakfast. Hope you've had a great start of the new year. And it is so good uh, to be back in business with you men studying God's Word and all these new faces out here. We're so grateful that you're here too as we begin this new series, which Todd started last week. When we're looking at the Bible, looking at Scripture's vision of true manhood. Now, as Todd said last week, we know that there's so many uh, dissenting and confusing voices in our culture that tell us what it means to be a man or what it doesn't be to man. And most of it's not helpful. A lot of it is very unbiblical. So as a teaching team, what we're going to be doing in here is drilling down on those things that God says in his word are crystal clear about what it means not only to be a man, but actually a man after God's own heart. Right, Because that's the whole deal. right? At the end of time, God is not going to say, Barton, how much like Dick Butkus were you? you know, he's not going to ask that. Or how much did you bench? He's not going to ask that question. He's not going to ask, Barton, did you live up to your culture's standard of manhood in the 21st century? Those are not going to be the questions that we get at the end of time. The question that we'll receive is, were you a man after my own heart? That's what he's going to ask. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's what we encourage in our children and our grandchildren and the people sitting at our tables with us? Are you a man after God's own heart? Son, I don't care if you're all state. I don't care if you follow in your old man's footsteps. I really don't care if you succeed in this life. Worldly speaking, what I do care about is that you are a man after God's own heart because that's what lasts. How amazing would it be if that was the standard of manliness are we men after God's own heart? So as a teaching team, we will be talking about some of these cultural issues that arise um, from the text that we'll be reading. But most of all, we're, we're drilling down on those things that God says are essential to being his men. And this morning, we're going to talk about one of those essentials, repentance. As I've grown older, as I've been a member of this church, I've been on staff in this church. I have lots of mentors in the faith. Uh, many in the, are there in this room. And one of the things that I've learned, one of the greatest skills that any man can have in their life is the ability to recover after failure. Uh, believe it or not, that's one of the more unifying characteristics of all of us in this room that, you know, at the end of the day, we're failures. We fail in sports. We fail in school. Hopefully not all the way through school, but I'm sure most of us have failed at one time or another in school or when you used to be in school. We failed in business. We failed in relationships. Uh, we're all failures, and isn't it true that some of the most successful people in this world and in our lives are those who have the ability to recover after they fail? That's especially true in our spiritual lives because it's factual. Every single person in this room is a sinner, and it really doesn't matter how successful you are because at the end of the day, we're all sinful before a just and holy God, and oftentimes our sin comes out in devastating and highly destructive ways. And therefore, if we never figure out how to recover after that, it really doesn't matter what type of men we are. We're simply ruined. We have to learn how to recover after failure. Now, the great news of the gospel is, is that God tells us in his word, 
that there is one and only one, but one surefire way to recover from spiritual failure. And it's the gift of true repentance. So what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to get two men side by side, the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. And we're going to look at three texts. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. Now, these two guys, they were similar in a lot of ways. They were both kings. They were both extremely powerful. They were extremely able. They had a lot of success in their lives. Both of them also were great failures, yet only one of them was able to recover after his failure. So the question we're going to be asking this morning, why was David and David alone between these two men described as a man after God's own heart? It's because David learned how to repent well. Three passages this morning. The first passage comes in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Hear the word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, and by the way, this really is an act of mercy, what he says to the Kenites. He says to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the uh, Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from um, Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. It would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret I have made Saul king. For he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, 
and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the, sp- the spoil. They took the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Now, switching over to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the one other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Then down to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. In response to his confrontation with Nathan, David writes and prays to the Lord, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that was a lot of scripture. And Lord, we don't have a whole lot of time this morning. 
So we pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would direct our minds towards you. And by the power of the Spirit, you would speak through me and speak to each of us uh, that we not, might not only be informed, but transformed by your word, that we might be repentant people. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. Another thing I've learned as I've grown, and this is by experience, is that true repentance is just hard. It's really hard. I don't think it's a man thing. I think it's a personhood thing. True repentance is hard. I've also noticed, too, that true repentance is an extremely rare thing to find in the world. On the one hand, you have a lot of folks who think repenting or even saying sorry is a sign of weakness and therefore don't do it. And you have other folks, too, who are in a constant state of fragility. They might feign humility, but they never experience the release that repentance offers. They stay in their guilt. They stay in their shame. Repentance is a a rare thing to find in the world. And believe it or not, true repentance is a rare thing to find in the Bible. And our second reading in 2 Samuel, after Nathan confronted David, David said, I have sinned. And he goes on to write Psalm 51. But those same words, I have sinned, are found elsewhere throughout Scripture. For example, Pharaoh said to Moses, I have sinned twice. He confessed that he was a sinner to Moses twice, but we know how that ended up. Judas, after he had realized what he had actually done, confessed, I have sinned. But he didn't experience release. He was destroyed. Uh, John the Baptist at the river rebuked the Pharisees. Why? Because they lacked the fruit of true repentance. And more to the point, in our first reading with Saul, he too said, I have sinned. Later in the passages that we did not read in that same narrative, he said it again. So Saul said, I have sinned twice, just like David. But there was something There was something lacking in Saul's confession. So it isn't that interesting. Again, you have two men, two kings of Israel, two powerful men, two successful men, two failures. And yet one was described as the man after God's own heart and the other was rejected as king. It's very interesting, this contrast. So the questions we have then is what was lacking in Saul's repentance that led to his rejection? And what is it that we can learn from David's repentance that we too might recover after we fall, because we will, and be described as a man after God's own heart? Let us first look at King Saul. I've described him as the man of the world. We'll be focusing primarily on verses 1 through 26. Now, it's been a while, I think, since we've been in here and have discussed the life of Saul. We probably know the life of David more than we do Saul. So just a quick summary of the situation and the sin that Saul committed. Verse 18 is a great summary of this whole situation. In verse 18, we see that Saul had been given the command from God to devote the Amalekites to total destruction. Now, this seems harsh to our 21st century ears. So a couple of things. First off, um, this was called a haram, right? It was an intrusive act of God's justice, on an unjust world through a theocracy, the nation state, his people. We're no longer a nation state, so this no longer applies. Furthermore, we're in a season of amnesty, 
right? Judgment has been delayed when Christ returns uh, in his second coming. Now we're calling people to repentance. So this is no longer in effect. Secondly, the Amalekites were dastardly people. They committed severe evil atrocities against their neighboring nations, including the people of God. So God calls Saul to go to war with these people. Sometimes war is the only answer to an evil people that will not relent. We see that here. But in God calling Saul to do this, we learn something. God says, Saul, I want you to go to war with him, but I do not want you to fight like other nations. I don't want you to be like the Amalekites, for example. This has nothing to do with imperialism. I don't want you to gain territory. I don't want to get you rich and fat off of this. This has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with my glory, my righteousness, and justice being brought against an unjust people. That's what was going on here. And so Saul says, you got it. And so at first, Saul did what he was supposed to. Very faithfully, he raised up a score of men and he led them valiantly into battle and he won the day. But two things he didn't do. First off, he spared the very best of the livestock. Okay, now that's significant. It wasn't like they were going to make a lamb pita after this. Livestock back then was synonymous with a nation's riches. So he, he devoted to destruction the, 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 the livestock that wasn't really worth much and he kept that which was, you know, had some price to it. He was plundering. He was getting fat. He was getting rich. His wallet was getting thick off of this. The second thing he did is that he kept King Agag alive. Now, we might say, well, that's very merciful. Well, no, it's not really. Because back then, that was a political move. He was basically building his own brand. Because if he had King Agag in his prison, what does that say of Saul? Well, it just says that he is the king of kings, right? So if we're going to nutshell it, this is what Saul did. He took his eyes off God and he disobeyed his commands. Now, he did do some things, but as we know, partial obedience might as well be full-on disobedience. Essentially, what happened with Saul is what happened with David. He was corrupted with power. He began thinking that the rules did not apply to him, and he began taking exception to God's word. And because of that, what do we see happen? God grieved this. And we might think to ourselves, that's kind of a misdemeanor. Right? Because especially in comparison to what David has done, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But we're told that God grieved it. We're even told that God regretted making Saul king. Now we know that God is sovereign over all things. He is perfect. He does not make mistakes. This is anthropomorphic language so that we might understand how God feels. Elsewhere in scripture, you know, we see passages where it seems like God has eyeballs or God has hands. We know that's not true. God is spirit. That's anthropomorphic language to describe to us what's going on. And right here, God is describing to us how he felt. He's intimately tied to his people and he grieved what Saul did. God's man, Samuel, grieved too. He wept all night because of what Saul did. Now, let's just think about that for a second. Is that overboard? Right, because again, we know what David's sins were. And these don't hold a candle to those, right? He, he, okay, he took some sheep and he spared a man's life. David is wrapped up in a CSI episode. And this is what, this is what Saul did? This seems overboard to me. Is it overboard? Why was David's heinous sins forgiven? Why was Saul rejected? A couple of things. First off, and this is the main issue, all obedience calls for true repentance, 
that, that's the main issue. The issue isn't how big our sins are or how small our sins are. The, the question is, have we truly repented of our sins or not? Right? Because just one infraction, one breaking of an iota of God's law was enough to necessitate the cross of Jesus. There, so there is no such thing as a misdemeanor sin. So it's not how big the sin is or how small the sin is. It's, it's really, have we repented of our sins? Sins don't damn us. Unrepented sins of damn us. I think a lot of times we think that following God or being a man after God's own heart means that we have to be perfect. And perhaps that's the reason as men who are leading our families or leading church or leading a business find it so hard to confess that we don't have it all together because that means that, that we're failures. But brothers, Bible tells us that being called a man after God's own heart has nothing to do with perfection, has everything to do with being a good repenter of where we're continually in humility, turning back towards God, making a good confession, as our dear brother uh, Tim Russell used to say, a full good confession, throwing ourselves on the mercy lap of the Lord. It's about being a good repenter, and that's what Saul failed in doing. Now, how did he fail? Several things. First off, Saul was self-focused. Primarily, we see this in verse 12. Much like we see in Adam, the first man in Genesis 3, Saul sought to displace God in order to become God in this passage. Ever since the fall, all people, all men, have been geared to being self-focused or in the business of self-worship, right? And we see this clearly in Saul's life. We see it clearly in verse 12. After he has finished the war, he won. And also after knowingly, Disobeying God, what is the first thing that Saul did? The dude threw himself a party. Just think about that. He made a monument to himself. <laughs> he made a statue. So unlike David, who in Psalm 32, after Nathan had confronted him, he wrote Psalm 32 as well, and he was describing what his life was like in those nine months that he was hiding his sin. And what was his life like? It was a complete misery because by God's grace, he had a semblance of guilt. He knew what they did was wrong. And he, so his life was just crumbling. The only life he had was in root only. He was not flourishing. He was withering and he knew it. But Saul threw himself a party, complete with smoke machines and beer kegs. His eyes were not on God. His eyes were on himself. Right? So not only did he disobey God, he completely missed God altogether. He was, even, he was not God-centered. He was Saul-centered. And we see that in verse 17 as well. When Samuel actually confronts Saul, he says, Saul, I know that you're small in your own eyes, which, by the way, might be a psychological reason that he fell into this sin. You know, I'm not good enough. God hasn't blessed me well enough. I deserve this. And Saul says, are you kidding me? He's made you ruler of all 12 tribes. He's made you king. You think you deserve more? You want more? David, by the way, does the same thing in the passages that we didn't read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Nathan says to David, David, did you want more than what God has already given you? You could have asked him. You didn't have to take it. But this is what Samuel says to Saul in verse 17. 
And of course Saul wanted more, right? Because his eyes were on himself. And that's really the root cause of his sin. He took his eyes off God. He quit listening to God. And he set his eyes upon himself. And brothers, isn't that why we sin? We quit listening to God. We take our eyes off God and we put them on ourselves. We might say things like, I know God's word says this, but this season of my life has been really difficult. I need this. I deserve this. I've fallen into that rut at times. And we fall into that rut. This is what has happened. Uh, We have paid more attention to our desires and our wants than we do to God's word and his glory. That's what Saul did. He was self-focused. Secondly, Saul lacked integrity. We see this in verses 13 through 14. Now, if this wasn't such a mirror to what we often do, um, this would be hilarious. When Saul, or rather when Samuel comes to confront Saul, even before Samuel says a word, Saul fills the air with words. Right, so Saul, if this is not an admission of guilt, I'm not sure what is. He sees Saul coming, or rather he sees Samuel coming, and the first thing that Saul says, even before Samuel can say a word, I mean, Samuel presumably could be there to see how Saul's doing. But Saul knows what's up. So before Samuel can say anything, what does Saul say? He says, Saul, praise be to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you know, I've kept all the commandments of God. How's your day been? Even before Samuel said anything. I mean, seriously, he's gaslighting Samuel. It's like an early form of gaslighting. He's shifting the narrative to avoid suspicion. Our children do this. My goodness. Four o'clock before dinner, my son is not supposed to eat, you know, snacks. I go into the kitchen. The first thing he says, Dad, I haven't had a snack. It's like, Eli, I didn't even ask you if you had a snack. And why are the cookie crumbs around your lips? You know, he's shifting the narrative to avoid suspicion. It's a form of hiding in the bushes. And ever since Adam, we've been hiding in the bushes too. Either because we can't deal with other people knowing that we have failed or worse off, We fear God. But the point is, true repentance requires integrity, not showmanship. It requires merely telling the truth, right? So Saul lacked integrity. uh, Thirdly, Saul made clearly, he made a whole bunch of excuses. We see this in verses 15 through 21. After Samuel called Saul out on all of his bull, he says, Saul, I literally hear the sheep behind you. There's one right now. How did Samuel respond? How did Saul respond, rather? He says, well, yep, sorry about that. You know these people, though. It's these people that spared those sheep. I wasn't really in on it. I devoted the rest of them to destruction, though. But it was these people that did it. Again, it's a shadow of our first parent, Adam, who shifted blame as well. Yeah, I sinned, but it was really her that made me do it. Yeah, I cut cunners at work. But the company doesn't pay me nearly enough. What was I supposed to do? Yes, honey, I did look at that. But you know my drive is greater than yours, and you're not coming around all that often. What am I supposed to do? It's really your fault. He blame shifted. And that's been a tactic that we've employed many times in our lives. We we blame shift. It's not really my fault. Now, it gets worse. He even actually starts spiritualizing his sin. Yes, Samuel, you got us. But listen, we're going to devote these bad boys uh, to worship. We're going to sacrifice them. Yep, I blew little Timmy's college fund in Vegas. But you know what? Had I won, that baby was going straight to the capital campaign. Right? He spiritualized it. Then worst off, he tried to give himself credit. Yeah, Samuel, we did it. 
But what about all the other things I've done? I mean, I did win the war. I did protect God's people. We did destroy all these other things. Give me a break. How many marriages would have been preserved? How many relationships restored? If people quit saying, yeah, but. That's what Saul did. Ultimately, Saul's repentance was reluctant. We see that in verses 22 through 31. Samuel finally had enough of Saul's excuses, his blame shifting, and he goes full Bob Newhart. He says, Saul, stop it. That's all he says. He says, stop it, please. Stop your blame shifting. Stop your hiding. Stop your gaslighting. Just stop it. Stop spiritualizing your sin. Is what He just had enough of it. And this is where he really goes for broke. He says, Saul, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. And if he doesn't have your heart, it doesn't matter how great you tithe, it doesn't matter how times you serve donuts in Sunday school or go to church. All of that is rubbish if God does not have your heart. He is saying there is no such thing as a misdemeanor sin. All of it is rebellion. And so right here, Samuel, with his tears in his eyes, is trying to get Saul to understand that, brother. Please stop it and repent. I'm worried for your soul is what's going on here. Now, it's at that point that Saul finally confesses his sin, but it's clear that his repentance was reluctant. It's actually explicit. He repented because he feared man. So in summary, Saul acted like a man of the world. He never repented. And his faux repentance was because he was afraid of what people might say or about losing his station. It was a feared-based repentance. And what we learn from Saul's life, because it begins to spiral pretty quickly right after this, is that fear-based repentance does not produce changed hearts. And brothers, if our repentance and our confession is based in fear of being caught, or in fear of consequences, or in fear of what other people might say, it will not produce changed hearts either. And we see that in the life of Saul. Saul was a man of the world. He was following the schemes of the world, and his life ended in ruin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if anything's wrong with the church today, he said this back in the 30s, it's this. The church lacks repentance. That's the root cause of powerlessness in the church There can be no spiritual power or influence without it. Furthermore, to live like a man of the world, it grieves God. And that ought to be the greatest reason that we live repentant lives so we do not grieve the God who made us and who loves us and cares for us. A man named Jeremy Taylor says, it is the greatest, dearest blessing that God ever gave man that they might actually repent. And therefore, to deny it or to delay it is to refuse health when brought by the skill of the great physician, to refuse liberty and freedom when it's offered by the gracious Lord. The key to be a man after God's own heart is to live repentantly. So that's what we don't do. Now the question is, how do we then live repentantly? Let's look at King David right quick. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verses 1-4. through 4, and We're also going to focus on Psalm 51, verse 4, and that's it. In chapter 11, the chapter in which we did not read, we learn about all of the heinous crimes and sins that David committed against Bathsheba, Uriah, and a myriad of other people. 
right? And in comparison, his sins, again, make Saul look like a choir boy. I mean, they are, they are horrific, his sins. But there's also a whole lot of similarities, right? Both men were corrupted by power. Saul was corrupted by power because he wanted to be like the kings of the world. David was corrupted by power because he thought that he could pretty much get away with anything that he wanted to. They were both corrupted by power. They both despised God's word for a season. Both Samuel and Nathan said that. God in his grace also sent to both men a messenger to convict them of their sin. And after that confrontation, both men confessed, I have sinned against God. Yet only one man, David, is forgiven. Now, what I didn't read is that David would go on to experience the temporal consequences of his sin. So a little caveat, brothers, God will forgive us when we go to him. He will forgive us of our sins when we confess them and throw ourselves on his mercy lap. But sometimes in his grace, he allows us the discipline of experiencing temporal consequences of our sin. If we murder someone and we truly repent, we are forgiven. We're saved from that but we're still going to prison. So David experienced some of the temporal consequences of his sin. He submitted to those actually humbly. He never grumbled. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But nevertheless, he was forgiven and he was restored to a right relationship with God. And so the question is, what is the difference? What did, what did David do? Well, we actually see it in Psalm 51 particularly verse four. Verse four is somewhat of a summary of the entire chapter. The first thing, we see four things. The first thing that we see in David is a change of mind. That is, David actually repented in his way of thinking. And we see this in 4b, that middle, that middle phrase. If we're gonna be good repenters, when we fall, we must go before the Lord. And as David, we must say, Father, I have done what is evil in your sight. That's the key phrase, your sight. Brothers, we cannot trust our feelings, which is very hard to do in this age because the mantra of our culture is follow your heart, right? But when it comes to sin, when it comes to guilt especially, we cannot trust our feelings, right? Because who's to say our guilt is proportionate? I think there's a whole lot of people in the church that feel a whole lot of guilt when they shouldn't, and there's a whole lot of people in the church, too, that don't feel guilt when they should. So we need something up over us, a, a standard that's higher than our hearts, a standard that's higher than what Twitter says we should feel guilty about. David found that standard. What is that standard? Well, he didn't say, I sinned in my own sight. He didn't say, I sinned in my, in my dad's sight. He didn't say, I sinned in, in culture's sight. He says, I have sinned in God's sight. He made God his his standard. He, he was done living up to his own standards. He was done living up to the standards of this culture. And he started submitting himself to God's standard found in his word. And when he did that, he started agreeing with God. I am a sinner and I'm in need of grace. If we never measure ourselves up with the standard of God, we're never going to flee to God for help and grace, brothers. If we're constantly listening to culture. And here's another thing too. In, in our culture right now, it's a, it's a phenomenon, I think, in psychology. Psychology is good, but not when it comes to talk about our sin, I don't think. Because there's a lot of people today that call what is clearly sin in their lives mistakes. Yeah, I slept with her. It was a great mistake. Did you accidentally sleep with her? I don't get it. We often call sins in our lives mistakes. 
Now, psychology is great at telling us what is. It's never good at telling us what ought to be. And so if we're constantly blame shifting, if we're never being real with God's word, brothers, we're never going to deal with our guilt problem. Because God won't deal with our guilt problem unless we start being honest with our guilt problem, which is what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, not mistakes, but if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So David is saying, I'm tired of, of, of pretending to live under my own standard. I'm tired of the standard of this world. It hasn't helped me at all. God, I'm going to you. And, and before your word, I see that I am a sinner in desperate need of your grace. Finally, David starts agreeing with God. His mind changes. Secondly, his will changes. And this is explicating really that first point, but... David starts to take full responsibility. The glaring omission in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Psalm 51 is the omission of the word but. He doesn't say that word once. Yeah, but. He doesn't do that. Which is so refreshing. Because from the very beginning, Adam said, yeah, I sinned, but Eve made me. Saul, yeah, I sinned, but they are the real culprits, these people of Israel. But when it comes to David, he goes, I sinned. And that's it, full stop, full period, nothing after. He takes full responsibility. And he even goes deeper in verse 5. He says it's his very nature to sin. He says, I'm not a sinner because I sinned, but rather I sinned because I'm a sinner. David quit hiding. He quit blowing smoke. He quit trying to weasel his way out of it. And he went before God naked and says, this is who I am. I'm a sinner and I need your help. And brothers, that's the only way that we're going to get help when we go to God in complete honesty in that way. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart, not to live perfectly, but to make a good confession. Thirdly, we see a change of heart. David's heart actually changes twice in Psalm 51. First off, we see that he began to hate his sin. He used to be in love with power. He used to be in love with his position, and that led to all sorts of wrongdoing. But here we see that he actually hates his sin. And we see that in the language. He says that his actions, because of them, he had blood-stained hands, blood guilt. His actions he described as sins and transgressions. He also pleads with the Lord to rescue him from this lot, to wash him clean. He wants nothing to do with his sin. He wasn't afraid of his consequences because, remember, he submitted to them. He simply hated his sin. I think a lot of the times we hate the consequences of our sin. We don't hate our actual sin. How do you get to a place where you actually hate it? Well, this is how David did it. He took his eyes off himself. He took his eyes off his own sorrow. He took his eyes off of the consequences of his sin and he set them upon God. And he goes, against you and you only have I sinned, God. Now, obviously he sinned against other people. This is not a public confession. This is a private confession into the moment that he's making with the Lord. And he says, against you and you only. Ultimately, because I sinned against them, I only sinned against them because I sinned against you first. The reason I had a, an affair with Bathsheba is because I've already had an affair with you. And so he confesses that. And because of that, because he set his eyes on, on the God who made him and on the God who loved him, that enabled him to hate his sin. And I beg to make the argument that we will never hate our sin unless we start fixating our eyes upon God. 
The second change of heart, and this is really cool. Eventually, by the end of Psalm 51, he was filled with joy. This man who did those things was filled with joy? In Psalm 32, he said his life was a misery. But by the end of Psalm 51, the dude is singing. He's teaching others about the grace of God. He's actively involved in the mission of God's people. His bones were broken, but now his bones are rejoicing. How in the world did this man who had succumbed to guilt and shame come to a place where he was finally rejoicing in the Lord? Joy was the main descriptor of his life. How did he get to that place? Because some of us need to get to that place. We've been wallowing in our sin and in our shame and our guilt for so long. How do we get to a place where, can I, where I can enjoy the release of repentance and the freedom and the grace of God? How do I get there? All right, because that's how we recover. Well, this is the main point, the main, the main key to repentance. David hid himself in God. Uh, actually, I, I wrote it down, keep his eyes on God, but I want you to just write that out and replace it with he hid himself in God because that's what he did. Brothers, David's life, all of it, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Psalm 51, all of it was a trophy of God's grace. Some people have said that, that Psalm 51 is David's greatest victory. That's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. It's God's victory. God in his grace sent Nathan into David's life. David didn't ask for that. God in his grace brought about conviction in David's heart. God in his grace blessed him with the gift of repentance. God in his grace forgave David. God in his grace disciplined David. God in his grace restored David. David had nothing to do with it, but David was reminded of the grace of God by Nathan. And so what did he do? He ran to God and hid himself in his grace. And we see that in verse one. This is the grammar of the gospel in verse one. The first thing that David does in verse one is that he addresses God in all of his glory. Just and holy God. At the end of verse one, he confesses his sin. But what does he do between those two things, that middle phrase? He appeals to the grace of God. And so this is the gospel grammar of verse one. David showing us how to repent. God, you're just, you're holy. I am a sinner before you. These are the things that I have done. But God, I appeal not to my record. I appeal not even to my own sorrow or how bad I feel about the sin. I appeal to your grace and your grace alone. Put your grace between you and my sin, O oh God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Do away with my record. How crazy is that, that David suggested such a thing? What's even more wild is that David said, or rather God said, David, you got it. I am going to blot out your transgressions. I am going to restore joy to you. I am going to restore your life. I am going to make you whole and make you new. Now, brothers, how is that possible? How can we have assurance that God will do that for us? The reason that's possible and the reason that we can have assurance is because Psalm 51 is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blot out my transgressions is only made possible because Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. Purge me with hyssop is only possible because we have been washed by the cleansing blood of Jesus and justified in him. Hide your face from my sins is only possible because Jesus was willingly forsaken for our sins. This is the gift of repentance. And this is, this is what the cross does. It's God's promise to us that there's not one sin so heinous in this room that it cannot be forgiven. And there's not one heart so dirty in this room that it cannot be cleansed. 
That's the gift of repentance. It's where God, by his power of his spirit, awakens us to the fact that we are sinners. That he causes us to grieve our sin, to turn away from our sin, and to run home to safety in the arms of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, in my neighborhood, over by Avon Park, behind Independent Press, there was that freak windstorm. Some of us live in that neighborhood. There was great destruction. It was awful. Well, we live right behind Avon Park. So if you go out my back gate, there's Avon Park. And we knew rain was coming. We did some errands. So my wife and I and my son, Eli, four and a half, you know, we don't want to be cramming the house all day with a four and a half year old. So we wanted to get some sun. And we looked at the, the phone 15 minutes until the storm was going to be here. So let's go out to the park and have some fun, which was a dumb idea. We go out to the park and about three minutes of being there, the wind starts to pick up. And the hundreds of other kids that are out there were having a blast. I mean, they knew that it was going to be a windy day. They had kites and stuff. But you look up, and there's these horrible, evil-looking dark clouds. And my wife says, eh, maybe we should go home. I was like, nah, it's all right. We're having fun out here. Two seconds later, the heavens open up. Torrential downpour. I mean, it, it, was, it was so sudden, and the, and the temperature changed so suddenly, it took breath out of my lungs. I could hardly breathe for a second. Then Sarah says, <laughs> while all the other kids are having fun running around the rain, I'm sure they were going to safety too, but I hear my wife, get home, Martin! And she grabs up my son, my pregnant wife, grabs up my four-year-old boy, and I catch up to her, and I, I get Eli, and we run in the house, and just before we got into the safety of our house, the back fence to the gate, or to the park, just completely exploded from the force of the wind. Had I not listened to my Nathan in that moment, all three of us would have been smoked by that shards of wood. I actually pulled all the muscles in my chest trying to close the storm door because the wind was so violent. It happened like three seconds, but it devastated that neighborhood. Had it not been for Sarah, we wouldn't have made it home to the safety of our house. Brothers, get yourself a Nathan that when you fall, you might be reminded to return to the safety of your Savior. Every one of us is going to fail in this life. But the key to recovering after that, it's not found in this world or the schemes of this world. It's found in the Lord Jesus. The key to being a man after God's own heart is continuously, in humility, returning to the Lord and making a good confession and throwing yourself on his mercy lap. Let us encourage each other to do so. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gospel that tells us we're more sinful than we could ever thought imaginable, but in Jesus Christ, truly, we're more loved than we ever dared to hope. And so, Lord, let us rest in that, that we're free from condemnation. And in that freedom, continually return to you repentantly, being your men in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.